If you, need a, if you need a handout, go ahead and grab one. And I want you to turn to Isaiah 50 tonight. And I got to tell you what, man, this is one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah so far. And I know I say that probably a lot, but it really is. And I was thinking about it, man, we're in Isaiah 50. We've come a long way. I mean, that's wow, right? Not that we're, you know, anywhere close to the end yet, but, um, but wow. So I, I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at here in Isaiah 50 tonight before we read it. In this chapter, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see here the third of the four servant songs, okay? And, and particularly in verses four through nine. And remember what those servant songs are, right? They are the prophetic description of the character and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is actually the second one that is spoken by the servant himself, okay? And it, it describes in detail exactly what he's going to be faced with in his calling to redeem the people of God. And he, he does this, he, he speaks here, the servant does, right? The Lord Jesus Christ prophetically, he speaks here in, in, in the form of what we might call a soliloquy or a monologue. In other words, um, he's speaking his thoughts aloud here regardless of who might hear him speak. Now, I know that these words are spoken for our sake, right? Don't get me wrong, right? They're spoken for our edification and for our faith and for our instruction as the people of God. But the way that they're presented here, they describe the innermost thoughts of the servant of Yahweh, of the God-man, right? It, it, it's holy ground, if you will. This is really, this is a really special passage. And... Um, it's the most personal of the servant songs. And it gives us an insight into the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ as he received his calling um, and committed himself to the work of redeeming his people. You know, as he became aware as a man of what his calling was as the Son of God. And so um, I want us to read this together and then we're going to pray. We're going to dig into this text. But I want you to... I mean. Pay attention to all that. Pay particular attention to verses 4 through 9 as we're reading it. Let's look at it. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened? That it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my cheek to those who strike. And my cheek, my, my back, I'm sorry, to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? 
Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Mm. Let's pray together. Lord, your people, we love you. We love you because you have loved us from everlasting. And because you have taken it into your hand to do all that is necessary to redeem us and save us from the condemnation that we richly deserve. You are the one, Lord God, who, by the power of your mighty right arm, has delivered us from hell and death and given us a hope that is, that is imperishable and unfading. Lord God, a hope for which you are holding us fast by faith. Lord, I thank you for this text that we're looking at tonight. This, this text that, again, is the third servant song, but more than that is a call, uh, like the, the very heart of it, either turn to you, obey the servant, and have life and light, or rely on our own wisdom and lie down in torment. It's the message that every single person in the world needs to hear. And Lord, we've heard it. And our desire is to walk in the light of life. But I pray that as we study this text together, our, our hearts will be drawn out to you in a, in a deeper, in a, in, a, in, a, in a more just powerful way. That, Father, you would use these words to edify and strengthen us and to call us to a, just faithfulness and holiness and sanctification and submission to your will. Um, that, that you would be so glorious in our sight that we'd give no thought to ourselves. There'd be, there'd be, there'd be no, you know, there'd be no honoring us, just honoring you. Because you're the one that's worthy of it all. I pray, Lord God, that this text would add to our awe and reverence of you. And that, Lord, you would be just, you'd be pleased in the way that we, in the way that we study it tonight. Please grant me the unction of your spirit. Please give the same to these that are here. And Lord, bless this time that we have in your word. Make it, make it, um, it, make it eternally beneficial, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look at this text tonight, I just want to remind you, first of all, the context of these words. Okay, so remember that God has promised the physical rescue of the Jewish exiles from Babylon, right? He's promised that he's going to deliver them and he's going to return them to Jerusalem and Judea, that they're going to rebuild the city and they're going to rebuild the countryside and, and they are going to rebuild, you know, the temple, right? But as we talked about before, and this is important to understand, right? Location does not equal salvation, right? Like, this return to the promised land does not equal for them a return to the Lord, right? That, and that's important to remember. Repatriation doesn't equal repentance. And it doesn't equal, you know, a return to fellowship with God Almighty. So I want us to remember, though, there are that small group, that tiny, you know, remnant 
among the exiles of people that had confessed their sins and were trusting in the Lord and were trusting in His provision of redemption both physically and also of the, of the Messiah that was to come, right? They looked with anticipation to the coming Messiah and, and the hope of salvation in them, much like Abraham. You know, they, they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah, right? Saved by faith in the promise of God. But the majority of the Jewish exiles, and we've seen this as we've been studying through, um, particularly Isaiah beginning in, in chapter 40, the majority of the Jewish exiles in Babylon, they were unbelievers. They were yet unbelievers, right? They refused to see the grace and the wisdom in, in everything that God was doing, and so they complained against Him, right? First, they complained against His use of a pagan king, Cyrus, to deliver them from Babylonian captivity because that was beneath them, right? They deserved a better deliverer, right? And then secondly, of greater significance, you know, was this, is that they just doubted the wisdom and the purpose of God. They doubted what he said because it just didn't fit their own idea of things. And then even more egregiously, was their belief that, or more egregious, sorry, was their belief that God had forsaken them unjustly and that he had forgotten them, right? Even though he had made the promise, you know, to, to, to preserve a people for himself. And so they, you know, they thought that God's discipline in sending them into captivity was too extreme that their hardship and their trial was excessive. In other words, I want you to see what they're doing. They were positioning themselves for victimhood so that they could accuse God that He didn't handle them correctly, that, you know, that they expected Him to overlook their sins simply because they were His people. Right? You see the danger in that? They were making their own repentance impossible. Because they were refusing to see the enormity of their sin. Like their, their, their sin was legendary, wasn't it? Their idolatry and, and the way that they treated God's word with disdain and the fact that they had repeatedly not only refused to hear the prophets, but sought their death, the ones that God had sent to them. Their continued disobedience in the light of God's repeated calls, you know, for repentance. And so for that reason, what we have here at the beginning of chapter 50 is the Lord cutting through all of their protests, right? And addressing these unbelieving exiles with a firm and a necessary rebuke that they needed to hear, right? Look at it again with me. Just start with verse 1. Look what Isaiah says again. He says, thus says the Lord. Actually, it's God speaking, right? Through Isaiah. Where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Here's what the Lord is doing. He's saying basically this. Hey, who's at fault here? Who's the one that's at fault here? Who's to blame for y'all's current condition? Is Is it God? 
And, and notice how he does it. He asked them, first of all, to produce the certificate of divorce by which he sent their mother away. Now, remember, when, we talk, when they talk about the mother, the mother of the, of the Israelites, we're talking about, you know, earthly Zion, right? The holy city, Jerusalem, right? Which was destroyed when Babylon crushed Judah and took them into captivity, right? The point that Yahweh's making here is that he had not given them a certificate of divorce because if he had given them one, there would be no chance for any reconciliation between them. Now, he wrote a certificate of divorce, Jeremiah says, for northern Israel. But he hadn't done it here. God didn't initiate a divorce, even though, let's be honest, he had every right to do so, didn't he? Yes. Didn't he? Yes. He'd been patient. He'd been long-suffering toward them. He wasn't the reason for their current condition. Then he switches the metaphor a little bit, right? And he shifts to the, the relationship between a creditor and a debtor. Now, here's how it worked in the Old Testament, right? If you're a creditor... And your debtor couldn't pay his bills. You had the right to seize from him anything and everything that you wanted, equal to that debt. You could take the servants, you could take their lands, you could even take children. And God's like, God is saying here, I have no creditors. I, I owe no one anything, right? Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God owes no debt to anyone ever, right? The problem of the unbelieving exiles wasn't that, you know, God sold them to cover a debt. The problem's not with God. Now, the real issue is this. The real issue that they refused to see or acknowledge was that the cause for their circumstances, the real reason for their captivity was their own sin. And the Lord is emphatic about this. Notice this word, behold, right? Behold's that, whenever you read that word, that means you better stop for a second and you better take note of what's being said here. It's the same idea when Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, not that not every word is, is essential to hear, but this one, you better like perk up your ears and listen. He says, behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent away. All the excuses, right? All the rationalizations, all self-justification and complaint are done away with instantaneously. It was their iniquities. It was their transgressions that landed them in this situation. So behold, in other words, open up your eyes and unstop your deafened ears and quit making excuses and face the truth. Your sin put you here. Nothing else. Your sin put you here. So quit with all your objections, with all your quibbling over the details, and repent. God gives them no place for self-pitying despondency. Do you see that? For licking their wounds. That's the heart of this rebuke. In fact, he goes even further. He's like, I'm, I, he ups the ante, right? In verse 2, he says, why when I came, was there no man? Why when I called, was there no one to answer? When they were in the midst of their sins, right? When they were in the throes of their idolatry, the Lord didn't ignore their situation. He sent them prophets. He sent them men to speak His words, to call them back from their transgressions, to confront their faithlessness. The problem was none of them would listen. And the wording is very emphatic in the Hebrew here. I want to point this out. In Hebrew, it's very emphatic. The idea is not a single individual no one at all. None of you would listen. Again, he's speaking to the unbelieving exiles. All they had to do was listen and respond. All they had to do was repent and return to the Lord and take his words to heart 
God who was the offended party. That's, I, I really want to point that out. God who was the offended party labored to call them back and they refused to be entreated. The offended party is the one reaching out for reconciliation here. And, and, and they, won't, they won't be entreated. They're unappeasable. And yet the Lord goes on to, to ask, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? This is really cool. The shortened hand in Hebrew, it's not the same thing as, as the arm. The shortened hand in Hebrew is a financial, is a financial reference. It's a financial sort of statement. It refers to having a lack of resources to accomplish the intended result. A lack of resources to buy what you want to buy, right? Y'all are familiar with that if you have kids and they have an allowance. And you go to the store. And they buy something that they know they can't cover. And you get to checking out, right? And they're standing there with this thing that's already been scanned. And they're looking at you like, right? God's not short of cash is the idea here. He's not short of the resources to pay the price required to redeem them from their sin. He doesn't lack the payment that's required to buy them back and satisfy the debt of their sins. He can do it. He can make the payment. Through the divine servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that we know that's true, right? Yes. Remember what Paul says to the Colossians, right? Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. Right? Moreover, then he asked if they really believe. Do you really believe that I do not have the power to deliver you? Do they really believe that he doesn't have the power to deliver them from their sin and their rebellion, their true captor, not, you know, Babylon? And that question he answers definitively, God does, by a statement of his de demonstrated power over his whole creation. It's, it's got shades of the Exodus in it, doesn't it? Look what he says, starting at the end of verse 2. Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. That's kind of a graphic picture, isn't it? Their fish stink. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. In other words, here's the deal. Their situation's got nothing to do with victimhood. And it's got nothing to do with the lack of resources or power in the Lord. And it's got everything to do with their hardness of heart. It's got everything to do with their, their you know, stiffness of neck and their unwillingness to repent and hear and believe the word of God. Their self-pitying refusal to admit that, that, you know what? They refuse to receive the word of God and to believe both his threats and his promises. And that had put them in this position. The interesting thing is that God will, in fact, rescue even the unbelieving exiles from physical captivity, Right? They would get to return to the promised land. They would get to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. They would get to go and, and, and go back to their old lives in the, lands of, in the land of promise, right? Whether they believed in God's power or not. But they would remain spiritually condemned if they continued in their unbelief. And that was nobody's fault but their own. God said He would provide. In the church age, we see... He has provided the way of true and spiritual redemption through His servant, through the Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's now then that this chapter shifts from, from that rebuke, right? Necessary rebuke to this soliloquy by the servant. And he stands in direct contrast to the unbelieving Jews. In fact, it's powerful. And especially as we see it through the lens of the New Testament. And I, I want us to, we're going to look at it through the lens of the New Testament because it's remarkable. So I'm just going to read that whole soliloquy again, and then, then we'll look at the particulars, okay? We'll kind of take it section by section. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Again, this is a remarkable prophetic insight into the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is awesome stuff. And the first thing I want us to notice here is this repeated reference to the Lord God, right? The Lord God, the Lord God, or the sovereign Lord, right? Yahweh, the saving God in all of his absolute power. And here's why it's important. It's those references to the Lord God that divide the servant's testimony into its component parts, okay? So... I want you to look at him with me again. Just look at the first one. He says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This is really important, significant. The servant here represents or, or presents himself as one who is taught by the Lord God, right? Literally, it says in the, in the Hebrew, the Lord has given to him an instructed tongue. Okay? It's the tongue of a disciple. That's the idea here. The tongue of a disciple. The very words of God. You remember, the Lord Jesus Christ said of himself over in John chapter 12, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Right? The words of the Lord. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of the gospel. Those words the Father gave to him to speak. And for what purpose? He says here, so that he may know how to sustain. That's a very rare Hebrew word. It means to help or strengthen or assist. So he might know how to sustain the weary, right? Who are the weary? Well, those who are weary in the, in the, under the, the yoke of sin, right? Those that are weary in the, in the, 
in slavery to sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what he said, right? Remember these words. These words are going to ring with your ears, in your ears. Come to me, all you who labor and what? And are heavy laden. Come to me, all you who are weary. If you have the King James, I think it is, right? Isn't that weary in the King James? Yeah. And, and, and come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, right? And you will find rest for your souls. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke the words of life. Now, follow this with me, right? Life that only He can give. Again, John chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not talking about the resurrection at the end of days. He's talking there about Spiritual regeneration. He's talking about people being born again by hearing his word. They will come out of death into life, right? For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now I want you to think about this. I want to draw a connection here. It was for speaking those words of life and calling sinners to come and repent and trust in him that he was targeted by the Pharisees for death. Isn't that true? Now, here's the ironic thing about that. The Pharisees were a sect that was founded among the repatriated Jews after their return from captivity who believed that they could themselves earn their own salvation and the favor of God through strict adherence to the letter of the law as they defined it. Jesus said of them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. How interesting. The unbelieving exiles refuse to believe in the promise. The Pharisees refuse to believe in the promise enfleshed. Like their fathers, so are the sons. The servant describes how it was in this morning-by-morning discipleship. I love this. Morning-by-morning he awakens me. It was in this morning-by-morning discipleship that he learned the Lord's will, that the Lord opened up his ears to hear and to understand what would be required of him in order to redeem his people. And the servant's response was altogether different from the unbelieving exiles. It was in this day-by-day communion in the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the God-man, the incarnate Christ, came to understand His mission in the incarnation. As God, He knew it from all creation. As man, He learned it from the Scriptures and from communion with the Lord. And that's why Luke says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That is one of the greatest mysteries, I think, of the incarnation. And we'll never fully understand it. And then the servant testifies, look, second one. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. Right? The second stanza. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In stark contrast, think about this, to the Jewish exiles that were simply called to repent and believe. That's it. Just repent and believe. The actual work of redemption, the actual heavy lifting 
The actual accomplishment of it would be exceedingly costly to the servant. But he didn't stiffen his neck. He didn't bow up his back. He didn't back away from the cost of of pleasing the Lord. In fact, the Hebrew words in this section are, are what are called perfects of resolve. Okay? So in other words, we could, we could read this as, I resolved not to turn backward. I resolved to give my back. I resolved to give my cheeks. I resolved not to hide my face. These are perfects of resolve. And, and, I mean, and, and obviously, that there would be the temptation to turn his back is a forewarning of the hardships and the indignity to come. But he resolved... To face it in faith. He resolved to face it in confidence and to do what the Lord had ordained for him to do. In fact, you know, the, the mention of those who strike, it points to public chastisement, right? And suffering. The plucking of the beard. Man, that was a huge insult. Mocking and spitting. Acts of vile contempt, right? I mean, even today, if you want to really insult somebody, you spit in their face. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just saying that's what people do, Right? This description of the mistreatment of the servant, it finds its full fulfillment only in the mockery and the shame that Christ endured prior to and during his death on the cross, right? But he's not going to be deterred deterred because his trust is in the Lord God. He says, third stanza, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Right? That idea here of the Lord God helps me, it means this. It means that the servant is sure of the Lord's sustaining grace. He's sure of his faithful power and support. His confidence is not in his own power to endure, but in the Lord who helps him and who will vindicate him in the end. And everything that he suffers for the sake of redemption, it will not be for naught. He knows. He knows it won't be because he's got a word from the Lord. He's got a word from the Lord and that's all he needs. He trusts his word implicitly. And the Lord Lord God will fulfill everything that he promises. Now, we will see this more fully expanded, obviously, in the final servant song, right? That culminates in Isaiah 53. But here the stage is set for... The, the description of the servant's suffering sacrifice that brings forgiveness and, and salvation to unworthy sinners like you and me. He will suffer horrifically, but he will be vindicated. And we know that he was, right? You remember Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And it's for that reason, confidence in the Lord's help and vindication that the Lord Jesus Christ set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and to do what the Father commanded of him, knowing that the suffering and the death that awaited him there would not be the final word. Luke testifies that 
You know, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. I love that expression. That is, man, I love that, that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a description of an expression of divine grit and fortitude. Of a fixed, immovable, unshaking, unwavering resolve. How different is Christ from us? He was determined to go to Jerusalem, to suffer under the hands of sinful men, to pay the penalty of our sins by dying under the wrath of God the Father in our place. He was determined to give himself as a sacrifice for the holiness of God, to the holiness of God, the just for the unjust, the perfect for the ruined, the holy for the wicked and the defiled by sin so that we could be forgiven and he could bring us to God. He was determined to take the death of the cross and the confidence of his vindication in the resurrection that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption in the grave and that he would raise him from the dead and seat him at his right hand and crown him with glory as the only Savior of sinners. He was determined to obey the Father. Thank God he was. And we see his confidence as the true servant of God in the last stanza. Look where he cries out. He says, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Come, let's contend together. Come, point out my sin. Come, show me. Show me. Then there's no one to be found. In fact, they're all going to They're going to wither away as nothing. Remember the tactic of the Pharisees. Remember what it was whenever whenever Jesus would speak the truth, which they despised, or when he would do some miracle that they couldn't refute. Do you remember how they would respond? It was always to do something like this, to call him an illegitimate son of Mary, or to speak in broad brush accusations, right? Calling him a drunkard and a sinner, calling him a calling him demon-possessed, that he did miracles through Satan's power, accusing him of blasphemy, all to try to justify their sin and their iniquity, right? And here's the servant pictured, you know, as calling them, okay, put facts to your accusations. Put facts to your accusations. And they could never do it. And that, in fact, took place in in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't it? On one of the very days, that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being born of sexual immorality and then said, God is our Father, right? John records these words. Jesus said to them, this is John chapter 8, starting in verse 42. It's on your handout. John said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not on my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And then he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever's of God hears the words of God. The reason you don't hear them is that you're not of God. 
And the servant song closes. It's remarkable, isn't it? And what's even more remarkable is the servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who speaks through the scriptures. Man, what a savior we have. What a glorious and awesome redeemer is Christ. Like, who compares to him? Who, who compares to him? The eternal God, the second member of the Trinity, willing, willing, the offended party, willing to suffer to save rebels against him. <laughs> he stands alone as the true and the faithful servant, doesn't he? Yes. Yes. Hey, he's it. And you know what? The Lord God knows the worth of his servant. And he makes it clear in the final two verses. We got a choice, he says. It's either trust or it's torment. Look what he says here. Read these last two verses with me. He says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. That's very plain speak. It's just plain speech there, isn't it? Now I want you to see, don't miss the connection here. Don't miss the connection that God is making here. To fear the Lord, right? That is to honor Him or to worship Him or to find salvation in Him or to give Him the reverence that He's due. It is to obey the voice of the servant. Do you see that? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? They're one and the same thing. And that's by God's design. The way to honor the Lord is to obey a servant. And again, we go back to the Gospel of John. It's remarkable how a lot of this is fulfilled in the Gospel of John, isn't it? We go back to the Gospel of John, and we see this played out clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? John writes that the Lord Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Then he says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Man, the call is direct and clear. You are in darkness and have no light. Look, trust in the name of the Lord. Trust in his servant. Obey his servant and you'll have the light of life. Because it's found in him alone. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. The Apostle John, right? Later on says in his first letter, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look, you can have either light and life or you can have torment. Those are the choices. God's not hiding it. And those who reject the wisdom and the way of God, those who light their own torches, they're doomed to torment. That's interesting here that when the Lord says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, it can mean one of two things. But they both lead to the same result. Okay? It can mean, it can describe a violent 
response to the truth of God, the whole get the pitchforks and light, pitchforks and light the fire, you know, like the whole Shrek thing, you know. It can be that. Or the attempt to walk and live by our own light and by our own wisdom. But they both lead to the same direction. Try to walk in rebellion according to your own light, the light of your fire, and by the torches that you've kindled. There's only one result. And we've got it by the solemn promise of God. This you have from my hand. Picture there is of a king giving a decree. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The interesting thing here is this torment. Torment is found only here in the Old Testament. This word. It's the the only place it's found. And it means a place of pain. Or of grief. Or of sorrow. a, A place of displeasure. Under the curse of God. Now the interesting thing is, is that this word can, can, can speak to either temporal torment or eternal torment or both. And based upon the context here, I would say it's the latter, that it's both. And it's a guarantee from the hand of the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Obeying the voice of the servant leads to everlasting joy. Kindling your own torch to lying down in eternal torment. Those are the choices before every human being. And God's question resonates with us. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let us, beloved, be able to say in sincerity and truth, we do. We do. We want none other. We do. Thoughts, comments, insights, brilliance, yeah. So I thought the uh, the section there in verse eight. Yeah. It really kind of resonated with a similar tone of what what Paul said in Romans eight thirty three, where he said, you know, uh, who will who will can yeah who will bring a charge against God's elect yeah. right? Who yeah. And to me, it's the being. It's God who justifies. Who shall condemn? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, being clothed in Christ is what allows us to then make that claim because in reality we have charges again oh yeah it's only in Christ yeah absolutely only in Christ that we can make those statements absolutely true yeah anybody else somebody else anybody anybody alright let's pray Father in heaven just thank you thank you for this glorious picture and song of your perfect servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the plain speech and the reminder, the clear reminder to us that our choices are fear you and obey the servant or walk according to our own light and end up in torment. I'm thankful for your holy word. I'm thankful because we need to hear these things. I'm grateful, Lord God, for um, the eternal relevancy of your word. That, you know, it's just remarkable when we consider that. It's, It's awesome. Thank you for the words of the prophet that ring true throughout eternity. We love you. We're grateful to you for this time. 
And we, we just bless you and give you all glory in Christ's name. Amen.